Welcome to Get It, a podcast about cybersecurity insights for the foreseeable future, brought to you by CDW and Cisco. I'm Amanda Capito. In this episode, we're going to talk about zero trust. Both CDW and Cisco see zero trust as a framework that informs your approach to security rather than a single solution. At its core, it works to only allow access to intended users and devices. Hundreds of Canadian organizations have opted to take this approach, leaning on the expertise from leaders in the industry, like my two guests today, Theo Van Wick, Head of Cybersecurity at CDW Canada, and Wolfgang Gorlick, the Advisory Chief Information Security Officer for Duo Security at Cisco. Theo and Wolfgang, thank you both so much for joining me today for this discussion. Just to kick things off, I would love to hear your thoughts about Zero Trust Framework and whether or not you think it's actually an essential piece for security. Theo, why don't you start us off? You know what, it's one of, uh, it's an interesting concept. Uh, I think security has always been the thought process around controlling access, managing risk, and setting it up. And so the concept of Zero Trust is definitely an element that enhances it and makes it more manageable. Uh, I I want to be cautious with, is it essential? Uh, you can probably have forms of security without zero trust, but at the end of the day, I think to really have effective security and manageable security in today's environments, yes, I think if you can make it an essential part of your security program, you are going to see great rewards and it will make life a lot better for you. Wolf, what do you think? What is essential, right? Access control is essential. Um, you know, ensuring that we're not bringing malware into the environment is essential. Uh, ensuring that uh, that our people are what we think they are, uh, which sometimes is not the case, as we all know. And in ensuring that our devices that are accessing enterprise applications are um, demonstrating good security hygiene. Now, it is zero trust the only way to do those things? No, certainly not. There's many ways to do those things, and we've been struggling with different ways of doing those things for uh, at least as long as I've been in the field. Um, what is intriguing to me is the zero trust concept laid on top of those. Um, so what is essential doing those fundamental tasks? And, and what zero trust brings to the mix is, is a way to structure and lay out those controls uh, in, in perhaps an easier to, to consume fashion than we've had before. Okay, so sticking with you, Wolf, um, let's talk about the history of Zero Trust. How has it become embedded in organizations? What have you witnessed? Sure. Uh, history is always one of my favorite aspects of, of IT and IT security, so I'm so glad you asked me this. You know, in, in the, the beginning, in the great old days, we relied on slow changes, uh, slowly changing signals of trust. Where are you in a group? Where are you plugged into a part in the network? Uh, and there was a realization about two decades ago at, uh, at a uh, working group called the Jericho Forum that this was not gonna scale, that services were moving beyond our firewalls, services were moving beyond our, our approaches uh, and so the Jericho Forum, so named because, you know, Jericho and the walls fell down, came up with this concept of decriminalization. And, and for a while, that was the, the leading tale uh, or the, the leading, you know, end of zero trust. Certainly that followed on with network access control and uh, anywhere access and everything else, you know, in the early aughts. Now, 2010 happens, 
And uh, 2010, Forrester comes out and says, deperimeterization is great. Um, it is definitely the way of the future, but we really need to think about this more in terms of identity. And so they coined the term zero trust, and a lot of work goes into exploring what that means. Um, good four years goes by, and then, then one of the biggest uh, attacks ever, Operation Aurora, which was, you know, uh, precedented by a uh, zero to exploit and internet explorer, happens, and Google goes, ah, wait, this is bad. We can't have people breaking in. They look at the Jericho forum, they look at Forrester, and they come up with their own model, uh, which is beyond Corp. Shortly thereafter, Intel files suit, um, PagerDuty files suit, uh, Microsoft, you know, starts advocating for this concept of Zoom breach. And we begin to think about security as being at the identity of people and their devices and, and lots about where they are. We begin to think about shorter timeframes for asserting trust. Um, 2017 happens, the PagerDuty folks who looked at uh, what Google is doing, built their own version, they came out with the O'Reilly book. So 2017, PagerDuty, they come out with the O'Reilly Zero Trust book. Fantastic book, really set a lot of uh, people on the path. Um, and then in, in recent years, of course, NIST and the UK Cyber Security Center have come up with their standards. And we're just at this point, you know, ending up 2019 going into 2020, where Zero Trust has moved from being this, this idea, this uh, approach that very large companies were following, to an approach that realistically a lot of organizations have begun projects and implementing with off-the-shelf software. Right. Okay. So, Theo, as we just went through all those milestones, anything that jumps out to you and in your journey in the industry uh, that you remember being really pivotal or in, uh, that you witnessed with your work? Sure. So maybe I'll, I'll give a little bit more of a frontline account. I think Wolf did a phenomenal job of actually historically and, and explaining the evolution and how, as a security industry, we've adopted and moved through it. Uh, but I think, you know, it, the really interesting thing, Wolf also alluded to the concept that zero trust has been around and in, in really maybe not so as the, the, uh, the term is phrased or coined, but the reality is the concept of trust is really what security is based out of. So when I rewind uh, 15, 20 years, you know, we were building security networks uh, for organizations and it was based off of trust. And originally, like Wolf also indicated, it was really more of like, where was I located? So we wrote rules that said that if I sat in the right network in the right office, I could access things that I had put behind some form of security boundary or perimeter, uh, hence that concept of a bastion uh, tile layout. But then the reality is as things got more complex, people moved around, networks became more sprawled, and that perimeter slowly started eroding. We started looking at other elements of deploying this. And so we found that concept of trust, um, authentication, and authorization started moving up the layer. And the next thing we started seeing is people deploying certificates on hosts. So suddenly it was not just about where you were connecting from, uh, where you were physically connecting to, but it sort of started looking at who, like what was your device? So was it a corporately uh, issued asset? Was it a trusted asset? And then that now in combination with where you were connecting from started giving you the next level of access or controls over uh, where these devices can connect to. But the reality is humans could still switch on top of the machine. I can use your device, you can use mine. There is a login and credential element, 
But what we've seen now is as identity and access management has evolved and you have new uh, companies are really starting to embrace it and, and be, it's just the type of applications we're rolling out in cloud and all these different environments really requires us to start moving closer to the user's identity to control access in a proper manner. Uh, we've now seen that elevated to the next level where now you're looking at multi-factor authentication um, as forms of authentication and authorization. So, you know, do I have something on me? Do I know something? And so I think that probably aligns very much to some extent to what Wolf was laying out, but just that's the, sort of the physical implementation of how we've seen this uh, boundary move from original IP or network port level all the way up closer and closer to the user. Right, so sticking with present day, then what are some of the benefits of having a zero trust model? Theo. So, you know, right off the bat, um, having a zero trust model allows you to restrict things up, like down significantly. So. If you look at uh, certain security uh, frameworks, such as PCI, very early on, people realized if you really want to implement a proper security control set and different controlling mechanisms, you cannot account for or account for every scenario across the board. So we started by descoping elements. So we controlled that scope. Uh, we brought in where the data was located and, brought and, and really locked down so that we can minimize the assets uh, that was in scope for the security policy. And I think zero trust like, sort of naturally is embedded in that concept, right? Although it's done slightly in reverse and where I take that to the smallest form and I'm saying, until I know who you are and until I know like what you should, be ha should have access to and you've proven that to me, you're just not gonna have access at all. And so I think the biggest benefit from zero trust, although there's some upfront thinking and work that will be, and we'll dig into that in a little bit, around what you need to support a program like that. The reality is none of, none of us has unlimited budgets to spend. And if I can lock down and understand where I need to apply my highest security controls and highest security level security solutions, and I can use something like zero trust to control access to those assets and to that data, then that is really one of the biggest benefits for me out of this. Right. So, Wolf, any other benefits or examples of how Zero Trust has made organizations or customers more secure? Yeah, I think there's there's two lines I tend to look at when I'm looking for benefits. One is usability and, and the other is defensibility. Uh, one is what a security technology conjunction with the rest of IT will enable and what is, you know, the security technology going to prevent one's a use case, one is uh, the threat scenarios. And um, I, I think we can have a long conversation about where it can play and usability, uh, because certainly, uh, especially as we're recording this and so many of us are working from home, certainly the zero trust concept of moving the perimeter um, to where you make an access control decision, as opposed to having a perimeter that is fixed in the building, uh, certainly that enables organizations to, you know, be much more flexible in how they deliver services and, and moving people around and <laughs> dealing with uh, some of the things that uh, the world's been dealing with recently. In terms of the defensibility, the threat scenarios, uh, one of the things I think is intriguing is through zero trust principles and through a policy, we can be very specific. We don't have to say, oh yeah, this, this 
technology reduces risk. Well, that's great that everyone says it reduces risk. What specifically are we doing? And some of the examples I've seen is, for example, um, we've got uh, a hospital that uh, has, you know, medical staff that comes in. It's not employees of the hospital. They don't have a, a hospital device. They want to grant those medical professionals access to the patient records. Of course, of course they do. That's <laughs> you're going to need that to to do uh, patient health care. At the same time, the threats now is they're concerned about is someone pretending to be a doctor when they're not. Well, you can address that with you know good identity, strong authentication, multi-factor. Um, they want to make sure that the devices that are connected aren't jailbroken. Uh, I don't know if uh, you guys saw, but just just recently, again, a new way of jailbreaking iPhones was was released. So they want to make sure the devices aren't jailbroken. Well, you can you can put that in policy and say no jailbroken devices can access uh, the me- medical records. Um, they want to make sure that if there's any malware on the devices, the devices and the users can only contact uh, a help desk so they can get cleaned up. Certainly, that's another thing that can be done. So just in that example of the hospital, you begin to start thinking through all the things that can go wrong with with accessing uh, services without a perimeter and without having corporate-owned devices. And pretty quickly, you can start seeing how the threat scenarios can be developed. And there's exact parallels in financial services, in manufacturing, again and again and again, all organizations have critical resources. And we all think we don't want that to happen. Uh, the, the intriguing thing about zero trust in policies is getting beyond the blanket statement, I reduce risk, and getting to policy-enforced ways of stopping threats. Right. So if an organization wanted to roll out zero trust, and we're starting from the beginning, where, where do they start? What's the first step? So there are, in, in my way of thinking, there are broadly three use cases for zero trust. There's zero trust for the workforce. In other words, your, your employees, your partners, the people who need access to applications. Someone accessing sensitive applications um, from anywhere. And there's zero trust for the workplace, which is uh, medical devices, manufacturing devices, IoT devices, printers and copiers even. Um, And then there's zero trust for workloads, which is um, the zero trust implementation within the applications our developers are building. So first, you you would figure out what the right use case is. Um, let's let's say it's zero trust for the workforce. It tends to be the one where most people start. Um, it's it's easier one to implement. The technologies are are more readily available. You'd start off by having strong identity, multi-factor, step-up authentication, those sort of things. So having strong identity for your people, um, having a way that they can access their applications. That's usually through single sign-on. Um, that is, again, ensuring that, that that access is going through the zero trust policy engine so that it can be turned on or turned off, depending on what happens. Next is implementing strong identity for devices and putting around telemetry around those devices so that we can make sure that they're healthy, that they're secure, that they need policy, um, which is, of course, the very next step, which is implementing policy on the people, the app, the device, 
so that you can you know extend functionality you can you know do the usability side while blocking certain scenarios doing the defensibility side um, and so after you got the policies in place identity and applications and devices from there it really is a matter of moving into continuous improvement where you're looking at um, ways to better home the policies, ways to get better telemetry on the devices and the applications, um, and certainly better ways to deliver services to the end users. Okay, I wanna circle back to policy development, but first I wanna give the floor to Theo. Anything to add to that? Both have sort of done a really good job of laying out various of the elements. Uh, what I see from a high level element is, if I'm gonna enforce control, uh, I need to know what I'm protecting. So. A lot of the work that we do with customers is around thinking and classifying your data, right? So we have the concept of CIA, like confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And have you scored your data services and your assets according to that? Because once you understand if you're trying to preserve integrity or availability or data, that sort of forms the next step that leads into your ability to decide how you should segment it, what kind of security control should you wrap around it. Um, and at the end of the day, you need these uh, checkpoints, these controls, because once you allow access uh, to Wolf's Point as well, you need uh, like a continuous monitoring and a continuous evolution to the service where I need to be able to revoke and control and restrict if on one of my checks I realize something is going wrong. So now I know where my data is, I've scored it, I understand what the services are. Um, I've sort of started wrapping it with my security controls. And then I also want to understand how my organization needs to use it. Because once I understand who you are, I need to open up access through the network and through these different security controls and policies in a manner that balances uh, usability with security. And you always have that slide, that uh, graph where if I move shift all the way to the left, it's 100% secure but completely unusable. And I shift to the other side, and it's 100% usable and 0% secure. And we're trying to find the right balance for the different services and data based on that. But then ultimately, once I have it segmented, I have my controls in place and I understand what how I want to use it, uh, then it does spill back into the identity. And this is as we move up to that user layer, where now I have to understand who you are, uh, what group do you belong to, uh, potentially your device is another layer of uh, that we need to validate. And based on this complete view of your identity, your access and your context within your organization and how you need to access this data, I can now uh, fix zero trust, and then use these pieces to put together the effective security policy and user experience. So you talk about this spectrum. How do you find that right balance, though? How do you how do you perfect that? A lot of it is based out of uh, pre-work that you just you have to do around understanding the data in your organization and services and how your users are using it. You know, uh, Wolf, Wolf highlighted as an example, like the concept of IoT versus users, right? And what you should do is if you work through these uh, balances, the risk, you know, is this patient data I'm accessing? Who is this? Is this a doctor accessing patient data? Great. Is he, the doctor accessing patient data on an untrusted device? Once I understand these scenarios, I can now start translating that into security controls and techniques. And the, uh, the quick answer is, unless you have a very limited scope project that it's very easy to define these parameters and lock you down accordingly, there is some legwork where you potentially have to look at a security framework or look at some sort of governance framework and work potentially with a third party security provider if you're not comfortable with it to understand the intent behind that framework and how that applies to your business and your data.
Right. So circling back to policy now, um, Wolf, you highlighted that as an important piece. What would be some best practices for policy development? So definitely having a good understanding of the data. I, I really like to feel what you were saying there, and it, it's, it's so true, right? What is it we're trying to protect? Uh, what's the value to us as an organization? Um, also, conversely, uh, what's the value to the attacker? Uh, and, and therefore, you know, how motivated are they to go after the data? So certainly the, the classification makes a lot of sense to me. Um, translating that into the applications that serve up that data so that you have a good insight into to what those are. Um, and then looking really at the telemetry that your zero trust platform provides. Um, so, for example, for a trusted device, um, or a corporate-owned device, you're going to have different levels of information. With a corporate device, you're going to have a, you know, a full set of agents on there. You can push software. You can change things. you got full visibility into a number of different configuration elements and activities. If it is a BYOD device, perhaps you have you know, a mobile device management or, or, or similar tool on there. So you've got, again, a, a fair degree of visibility, not as much as if, it was a corporate-owned device, but a fair degree. Um, and then the, the third spectrum is trusted devices that you perhaps allow in the environment um, that uh, don't necessarily have that control, at which point in time you may just know things like if they're jailbroken or not, the, the version of the software, um, the version of the OS. So looking at the different classifications of applications, looking at the different classifications of devices, and really from that point in time, looking at what you're wanting to enable, and, and most importantly, looking at what you're trying to block. Um, and do you have the granularity of information there to to make a good uh, policy decision? So for example, I'll, I'll give you a good one. Uh, my organization does, does zero trust. Uh, one of the policy decisions they have is thou shalt not access sensitive information like our documentation, our wiki, those sort of things, um, without a date versions of Chrome. I am constantly running afoul of this policy because I forget to close Chrome and then Chrome can't update. And and then one day I go to, you know, click on an application and I get the error message that, uh, you know, your Chrome is out of date. Please, please follow these instructions to update it. Um, really handy. And, and frankly, it does concerned me in other organizations about just how long I was running out-of-date software and just didn't even notice it because I never closed my browsers. So it, it's those sort of things, putting in place good policy that's driven by insights and visibility, and then putting in place good remediation that's often done with collaborations with the users. Um, those two activities really drive a, a good policy set. I love that example, and it makes me think I need to update my software for my browsers. But um, let's talk about the user experience now. How does Zero Trust enhance the user experience? Theo, why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, that is, again, you have to strike that right balance. But I think at the end of the day, uh, if you can have a set of policies and access and rights follow the user and create a consistent experience, I think that is the secret in zero trust. So 
you know, we've had the cases where I'm working from the office and I can get to a document and I go home and I fire up my laptop and suddenly my VPN doesn't give access to that. And so I'm struggling to get access to the document. Um, you've, we've all had cases where I try to install a file or, or software on my laptop that I really need and I had access before, but now for some reason that it has to do something that I can't get to it. So it zero trust for me becomes very important when you start looking at creating that holistic uniform user experience. Uh, the other thing too is if you start moving between projects or different elements, another element there would be, for instance, if you have to suddenly start working on a new project that you never, uh, that you just got moved onto the team for, access provisioning in some large complex corporations can be like days to weeks for you to just get access to the right files and services that you need to actually do your work. So again, like a big thing here is that zero trust based in an identity approach with policies that set up accordingly means that if you move me into that project, my identity can get the right access because those policies have been properly defined. And so I think, you know, this is really the element of the user experience uh, that becomes very, very critical. And also if you're moving around between assets, certainly like uh, we had talked about today, some devices just will not deserve the right kind of access. It may not be trusted, maybe jailbroken. Uh, but, you know, at the very least, it, I think users are in a phase these days where they want to know. Uh, Wolf had a fantastic example about his browser being open and then realizing that once he closes it, oh, I should really update it. It's been open for a while. But again, you know, that's user education. That is something that before we would never even be known or would know or be aware of. And now it's it's the user being educated because I think once you get past the fear mongering and you, you help people realize that being secure and working in a safe environment is actually is complementary to your environment and how you operate in your job. And it's not just about fear mongering and removing access and restricting. That is, if you can accomplish that, that's where that concept of identity and zero trust really truly meet and, and operates in the right way. Yeah, Wolf, anything to add to that? Sure, I I call this my uh, Ray-Bans, not safety goggles <laughs> rule. Um, one of the things I was surprised to learn a while ago was that uh, Ray-Bans, right? Those cool sunglasses that we all want to, to get out now that summer's finally here. Uh, Ray-Bans, when they originally were released in the 1930s, were safety goggles. They were safety goggles for pilots because the other goggles, all the glasses they were wearing, would get fogged up and the glare was causing pilot error and everything. Um, but no one, no one buys Ray-Bans because they're safety goggles, right? You buy them because they cut down the sun, they look cool, and it's a you know good pair of sunglasses. Uh, I think oftentimes when we go to deliver security, we're really focused in on the safety goggles side when we should be thinking about the Ray-Ban side. And for zero trust, there's a, a number of different things here, right? Uh, how easy is it to get to my apps? For so many users, it's really a pain. Is that on the VPN or not? Is that is that, uh, is that in my shortcuts? I don't know. Oh, it's a new application and the link changed. How do I get to it? You know, maybe I'll just uh, get on chat and uh, ask someone and it'll send me the link. So it's, it's things like, getting the apps, giving the user a consistent experience to get to the apps, reducing the number of passwords and authentication steps that need to happen to get to the apps, um, reducing the amount of friction it takes to maintain my BYOD device, my corporate device, my personal device. Uh, I think 
zero trust done right um, can be Ray-Bans in that it can really enhance the user's overall experience with technology, while at the same time, in the back end, we're like, great, we can finally wrap some policies around, we can do all the security tasks that the users really don't necessarily care about. What they care about is, oh, my stuff is easier to get to, and there's fewer steps involved. With that, we're going to round out with our final question. Looking ahead, what do you think will be the future of zero trust? Wolf, why don't you start us off? So when we're talking about the policy engine, uh, what we're talking about is signals of trust. And I, I started off by saying, historically, these are really slowly changing signals, right? What group were you in? What IP address were you on? What port in the network? Uh, now, as we've been talking about uh, in this conversation, there's some better signals. Um, what, uh, what can we get from the telemetry of your device? What can we tell from the type of data and applications you're accessing? Um, so really, we've made some good progress there. I think the future is going to be enhancing those trust indicators. So by that, uh, I definitely mean behavior analytics. What, uh, what could I tell by how you're using your apps and how you're using the, the uh, data to ensure that um, you're still trustworthy? Um, additionally, going beyond just surface-level analytics to exploring um, how the data is moving, how the applications are being interacted with, looking at specific actions that may indicate fraud, um, and using those indicators, those signals, to feed back in the policy engine and, and take steps to uh, interact with the user when necessary so that uh, we are defending uh, while at the same time not getting in their way when, uh, when nothing is going on. Okay. Theo, what about you? I think I was both summarized it really well. Um, I like some of the keywords you put in there, right? Behavioral analysis. I think as ML and AI comes up with more and more, being able to look at a behavior and see past the immediate zeros and ones on the wire and building an image um, and being able to take action on that is going to be critical. I think we're going to see more and more integration with uh, security orchestration and automation and response around uh, SOAR tooling, for instance. Uh, I think what you'll see is zero trust right now. Everybody is is really moving in. About two years ago, we saw a similar, in the Canadian space, a similar move towards risk-based security, right? Like we started seeing people really asking, how much security control should I wrap around? Um, is this critical? How hard will the attackers try to get at this data? And I think with if we look at uh, zero trust, we're going to see the same kind of assessment against what kind of data am I protecting? What are the services and how are users accessing this? And how can I wrap that with other things to get beyond a traditional password or MFA? So whether that's a user behavioral analysis, and then to Wolf's point is how do we just, how do we protect the users without getting in their way? And some of this might be around that orchestration and an automation piece where the human capacity to process this data and review it from a security perspective might be limited. So can we wrap this around with SOAR and really resolve issues for users before they even realize it happens while keeping them secure and taking some load off of my um, information security teams? All right. Yeah. And as a user myself, I'm going to be really interested to see where we land on this spectrum between protecting users without getting in their way. Thanks again to both of you, though, for this conversation. Really great. 
Get It is brought to you by CDW and Cisco. Thanks to our guests, Theo Van Wick and Wolfgang Gorlick. And thank you for listening. I'm Amanda Capito. For show notes and additional episodes, visit cdw.ca slash security podcast.